Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Tyson Beach joining us. Dr. Tyson Beach is currently a teaching professor at the University of Waterloo, teaching courses on the biomechanics and assessment of human movement, exercise prescription, and low back disorders. His previous research focused on quantitative motion analysis, prevention of work-related musculoskeletal disorders, and advancing fundamental knowledge of spine mechanics, control, and injury causation. He also collaborates with other researchers and practitioners to design, implement, and evaluate physical activity and exercise programs for workers and athletes. This episode is a continuation of the discussion from the last episode. We continued to discuss important factors to consider when reading the literature relating to lifting and spine flexion. In this episode, we went more in-depth in the spine biomechanics during lifting in different contexts. If you haven't listened to the last episode yet, it may be a good idea to start there to establish the context of the discussion for this one. And again, I've included timestamps in the episode description to help you see how the discussion evolved, but I highly recommend that you listen to it in full. Enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I, in terms of my anecdotal personal experience, once I started to repeat that sort of motion at the gym, which is to hinge at the hips, keeping the back as quote unquote neutral as possible. And I, I do carry that over to lifting in daily lives a lot, like for example, moving homes and whatnot. There was a study you'll be very familiar with by Dr. Dave Frost on comparing and contrasting training with the movement focus versus the fitness focused. And that's really a good evidence for what we're talking about here. I wonder if you want to elaborate a little bit on that study. Yeah, so the idea was, um, this is actually something that Dave and I collaborated with, with our supervisors, Dr. Jack Callahan and Stu McGill, who you've had on your podcast. So the idea was, this is you know kind of a, an initial kind of test of this, is we're kind of blending movement science and exercise science principles, right? So you're thinking about not only exercise training and all the kind of like physiological and related type of adaptations and functional strength, all those kinds of things. But you're also thinking about like the, the motor behavior piece, like how you move and how you do things. And we found that when, you know, if you were to train people um, and using a more movement focused kind of vocabulary, instruction, feedback, awareness, all those kinds of things, um, somewhat versus, I, I hate to say this because it sounds like we're not actually training. We still wanted to, we did this in firefighters and we still wanted to get them fast and strong and powerful. So we're still using like, you know, exercise science principles and strength and conditioning. But then we kind of compared this kind of movement-based approach, um, you know, with exercise selection, coaching, instruction to a more kind of conventional. So still like, you know, nonlinear periodized programs and trying to get people big, fast and strong. And with that type of approach, what we found was when you coach people to move a bit differently, like you kind of get away from the exercise itself and a little bit more about how you're performing the exercise without the narrative of like, this is good or bad. This is just the challenge you're giving people in training. 
that's more likely to show up in unrehearsed tasks than when you don't train like that. So what do I mean by that? Is we had these firefighters performing job simulations. So it was in a laboratory, all the limitations with that notwithstanding. But we had them perform, you know, a whole battery of movement assessments and screens. Like we did lots and lots and lots of stuff with these firefighters. They were amazing. And, you know, part of what we had them do is these job simulations. And we had them do it pre and post. Now, we actually weren't coaching. We were we coached the coaches who coached these people in between because we were too busy collecting data on the back end of this. And we also uh, blinded the coaches to the groups that uh, – or. So, guess we couldn't blind the coaches, um, but we didn't really tell them exactly what the difference was. So we did try to disguise this the best we could, you know, it was quasi randomized. There was a little bit of clustering just to get people back and forth, but we tried to randomize the best we could. And what we found was, you know, when they did their job tasks after, if we were coaching them, say, you know, to limit extremes in spine motion or to limit, you know, wild deviations and where their knee is in space, you know, the kind of lower extremity alignment, they were more likely to show that, to demonstrate that when they performed the job simulations after. None of these were rehearsed. Like we did conventional, like to their perspective, everything looks like exercise, but it's how we coach the exercise um, was very different with how it facilitated a positive training transfer, how we operationalized it. We wanted to see, say, for example, less spine motion when they're lifting, carrying, swinging through, you know, blasting through doors, breaching ceilings, all these kinds of things. And when you give a movement-based type of, you know, kind of coaching style, that's more likely to see that at the other side. So that's very different from what we see in the typical occupational training world of literature, where there's no debate that occupational training, manual handling training has no effect. Why is that? Yeah, there's a, that's a great topic. <laughs> um, so um I agree with you, Tiffany, 100%. If you look at all these meta-analyses that have been done, and there have been lots to show that, you know, kind of technique training or like manual handling training, client handling, patient handling, it doesn't work if you look at those studies. Now, I happen to be someone who's read probably all of those primary studies that are in these in these meta-analyses. And meta-analyses are very good. They're good methods. And I agree 100% with their conclusions. But if you look at the training, I wouldn't expect any of that training to work. There's no basis for a lot of the way that training is designed on like more fundamental human movement science and learning principles that it should work. So, and there's actually like a, there's been a few interesting kind of critiques on this that I quite endured. I didn't, wasn't involved, but I feel, you know, very similar with how these were done is... Um, and I'm actually happy someone did it because it's something I've wanted to do. I just never did. <laughs> um, but they did it better than I would anyways. But they kind of critiqued these programs and, and how they were evaluated. So basically, I'm going to give you the Coles notes is that these programs, you know, it's often input output. Like we train people and does it actually change the low back disorder reporting? And it doesn't. But if you look at the content, you'd have to question like the actual content itself. And I'll kind of give an example in a sec. But then even more importantly, when you're evaluating, I have never seen one study do this. And it's just mind-blowing to me. We don't actually see if people change how they move, right? Like you do these interventions, this training, um, even if it's high quality, you still have to see, does it, did they actually change their behavior, right? 
And I've never seen a study actually test that. So to me, I don't know if this is like training doesn't work or like that training doesn't work. And we don't even know if that training could change how people move or did. So I find I'm completely uncompelled by those meta-analyses because the evaluation is not appropriate. And what I mean by that is, well, I shouldn't say it's incomplete. It's not, it's not inappropriate. Um, the evaluation is outcome-based, which is what we care about. Like, did we actually change injury reporting or costs or sick days or whatever, or days off work, whatever that is. But there's no process evaluation where did the training actually do what it was supposed to do. And without that, to me, I don't, you know, how can we make a conclusion beyond, we don't even know if the training did what was intended, let alone, was it going to produce the outcome? Now, just a couple of things to think about for people who might be interested in this. A lot of this training looks like people sitting in a classroom, looking at videos, um, getting lectures on ergonomics, a very didactic type style education and pedagogy, which is really a weird way to teach a motor skill right? Like I find that just a bizarre thing. It doesn't mean you'd have none of that, like, you know, helping people understand, like have the knowledge to, to figure out why they're doing it. But you actually have to practice this. Like, could you imagine trying to teach someone to shoot a free throw and all you do is like talk about it and you never actually practice? Now, some of these things do that, some of these programs, but the practice is very sterile. So now the next question, imagine if I taught you how to shoot a free throw like for half an hour, for one half day session when you first got hired and we just practiced it like with the people in the program and then like we assume that that's going to be good. Could you imagine the first time you're in front of 20,000 people or like a TV camera on you like the or and you're fatigued, like you're running up and down the court, you know, maybe you're frustrated or you're like really on anxiety all that stuff is going to influence your performance, right? And in a workplace is no different in, in concept. So these training programs are not really well, and it's, you know, what I'm saying is very hard to do. Like it's easy for me from the cheap seats, right? To say, this is what training should look like. But I think from a scientific perspective, I'm not surprised that that training doesn't work. And I agree, it doesn't work, <laughs> but why would it? <laughs> right. So to say that there is no point in coaching people to lift with a better posture because that has absolutely no influence in the outcome of low back disorders, that's a very unfair conclusion to make from this literature. Well, I think it's fair if, if you take everything that I just raised as an objection to that thing, like that's actually what the data, that's what it shows. I believe that. Just my conclusion is that style of training I don't know why it would work and lo and behold, it doesn't. So I think, you know, a more um, sophisticated and actually this is actually quite a big topic because there's actually pretty good evidence that physical exercise does help people even apart from so-called technique training. But even, you know, technique training is a tricky thing because there is absolutely, at least a, I've never seen anything to convince me that there is a universally correct way to live for all people under all circumstances. And if that's the kind of assumption we're making going in with training, I don't buy that either, even if the training is very high quality. I think there are, you know, kind of bandwidths of variability that we think are probably good, but people need to have more movement solutions. They can't just have one. What happens when you can't put your foot exactly where you want it in the real world? What you're trying to do, it's like teaching an athlete or training an athlete, is you're trying to get people to read the environment 
also to have the physical competency to match their movement to the environment, but then also have the capacity to do that. Like I may know, like I may choose, I may, you know, be all in. I don't want to bend my back. Right. But if my ankles don't bend and my hips don't, um, like if I don't have range of motion in my lower extremities, that's not a movement solution for me. Right. And some people will say, well, like, you know, then people can't do it. Well, that's what training's for, right? Like if you, can you actually change people's ankle range of motion or their hip? Can you teach them to move their feet, right? To get in better positions. Uh, we've done studies. We haven't published them yet, so I won't go super far on this, but it's quite interesting that a lot of people won't recognize an opportunity to say, widen their feet and externally rotate them, like widen their stance. Like it's just not part of their movement vocabulary, right? They can do it when you coach them. And then some people that's still limited because maybe they don't have the range or the balance control or whatever that may be. That's not a solution for them right now. But if you were kind of training them, you know, in a more holistic way, thinking about, are you building mobility, competency, capacity, the way you would do with an athlete, try to try to not only give them the raw materials of movement, like you want to have a big vocabulary, like you want to be able to move differently. You want lots of viable solutions. That's, you know, what makes a good robust mover. That's healthy movement. Um, and then, you know, as the demands increase, you know, adapting and maybe shrinking your solution space a little bit to be able to maybe better tolerate that. But if you don't have those raw materials, that's not an option for people. But for me, that's what training is. Mm. So when you say there is no universal safe and correct way of lifting, you're alluding to the fact that there can be multiple movement solutions to a task while abiding by the principles and also considering the factors of one's physical capacity in how much they can lift, how much their tissues can tolerate, considering the environment, how demanding the environment is, how much is going on around them. Beautiful. Like that's exactly, that, again, this is easier said than done, mm. but I think that would be more aligned with my interpretation of movement science research, you know, and musculoskeletal, well, at least from a biomechanical standpoint. Again, when we're talking about pain and disability and function, like, you know, we've seen these systems analyses paper. There are dozens, if not hundreds of contributors, right? You can look at umbrella reviews. There are so many things that are contributing to the experience or the reporting of these. So I would make no claim that biomechanics is the thing under all circumstances to say it's irrelevant or to suggest that to me, I just don't like that. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Look, can I give an example if you don't yeah, mind? Go ahead. You know, there's an interesting kind of, I guess, logical thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is that most people will say, you know, like heavier kind of awkward repetitive lifting is associated with back pain. Not people will not always talk about this being uh, causal. I'm not making that claim right now. And then the, the another argument is, well, everybody flexes when they lift, right? I don't know how we get from there to say, well, then flexion is irrelevant. Like that doesn't, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that kind of reasoning. Like, you know, lifting can be associated with back pain. Everybody flexes when they lift. Therefore, flexion doesn't matter. Um, I, I don't, 
Do you see like where I'm stuck here a little bit? Yes, I've heard that argument as well. Um, I guess there's lots to be said about said argument, right? Like, yes, people can lift very heavy weights with really good postures and still end up getting back pain. But there's so many things to consider, right? Are they progressively loading appropriately in a good rate? How much are they doing it? You know, if they're lifting like thousands of pounds on their back, you can do at most a couple of these, not even a couple of these a week because you need to give sufficient time for healing to happen. Mm -hmm. And things like, oh, people flex when they lift anyway, or you see strong men, quote unquote, flexing around the Atlas stone and they have no back pain. And there's so much, so much discussion and so much reasoning to have to take behind these claims. Like, for example... Right now, they don't have pain. We don't know if in the future they will have. Or the strongmen are really trained, specialized in their sport, like stiffening the abdomen and creating a lot of intra-abdominal pressure, stabilizing the spine, not allowing it to have even more than a little bit of movement in it. So these discussions... Yeah, it's, it's really difficult because um, there's a lot of things that people you know, maybe we'll critique, criticize, and maybe you could help me kind of work through it. Because one of the things I find interesting in some of these discussions is that some people's anecdotes are okay, and some other people's aren't. Um, I'm not compelled at all by a strong man or strong woman or a power lifter who lifts with a flexed spine and doesn't apparently have back pain or injury or anything. That's not compelling to me. We can come up with lots of different things in health and like wellness and these kinds of things where someone's doing something that statistically may be counterproductive, but that particular person isn't negatively impacted. Like that's just, you know, we know this as at least as a phenomenon as survivorship bias. Like some people will indeed survive that. Um, and some people may not. And I, I'm careful not to use too many analogies because I don't know how strong the real signal is here. But, you know, something like if you were to say, well, some people smoke cigarettes and never actually like develop full blown lung cancer, like that's a little unfair, but it, the logic is actually not that far away. It's like, I knew someone who did it, therefore it doesn't matter. Um, epidemiology is all about statistics and probabilities, right? So you're trying to make these judgments about populations and uh, based on these individuals. So I'm never compelled by an anecdote because I can tell you, um, you know, in my background, I've seen lots of people doing things in a gym and end up, you know, disabled, at least temporarily, perhaps, or like the inciting event was something that they were doing. I don't know if that was the cause, whatever, like, I don't even want to play that game. But as my anecdote, like, if I go by my anecdote, then I have a totally different experience. So I don't find those overly helpful, to be quite honest. The other thing you said was um, really kind of triggered something that I think is important for people to understand. And it's a little bit I hope it's not too abstract, but let's try it and see. So have you heard of, I think you, I know you have, but maybe you can kind of walk us through so I don't get too abstract. The concept of load management, mm. what does that mean to you? I know with your strength and conditioning background, what does that mean to you? To take someone from where they're at and in a gradual manner, increase the exposure to loads, but also taking into consideration of rest you need rest to recover Beautiful. from the loads and adapt. Beautiful. So I agree. That's the way we typically think about it. Um, 
But I think what is often implicit there is not always clear. And I think we have to make it explicit. <laughs> I think load management as a principle of training, it's basically just talking about general training principles. And that's, you know, one way to kind of summarize these things. But often the loads that's that are managed are external, right? How much, how frequent, how, you know, many, basically the fit principle, you know, or type of thing, or maybe, you know, a combination with people's maybe sport or whatever. But the way I think about movement-based things, that's part of load management, right? That is part of load management. So even lifting the same thing, but lifting it a different way is load management. <laughs> mm. Like There's a difference between, and again, the epidemiologists may hate me for this, and uh, I'm not one, so I, I'm you know doing my best laboring along here. But I think of exposure as something like you lift, right? And you can even quantify that. Like I lift, you know, 300 times a day at work and I lift 10 times a night at the gym and blah, blah, blah. And like over some time period. But to me, I'd like to take it one more and think of something like dose, right? So what do your actual tissues see at that level or structures? That transformation between the external load and the internal load is highly nonlinear. It depends how you move, right? Mm. So if you're lifting, and this is a little bit extreme, but let's just give the example. You hear this about people picking up a pencil and that being the exciting event. I don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about the mechanics for a sec. If you were to bend over, like fully flex, fully stooped, and grab a pencil, there will be some tissues in your low back that are a maximal strain just by the posture. Yeah, there's very minimal external load. You're in a gravitational field, you're bending over, so there's some external load. Can you just explain strain as a concept a little bit? Yeah, so what you're doing um, mechanically is strain is how much the tissue is deforming, how much its shape's changing. So something like a ligament is going to be strained when it's stretched, right? When it's elongated. So if you took something like an interspinous ligament in the lumbar spine, and you you rounded your back all the way, that ligament that's basically you know connected between the two processes of the back, they are going to the spinous processes. When you bend, they go they stretch all the way, like a lot. Maybe not all the way; they're not necessarily damaged, but they're stretching a lot. So that particular tissue is actually subjected to quite a bit of kind of mechanical exposure, right? Just picking up a pencil. Now, again, let's assume you could perform a lift. Maybe it's from knee height or mid-thigh, like a mid isometric mid-thigh pull or something from a strength and conditioning background. In principle, you could probably do that without a ton of spine flexion to the point, and it could be your maximum load. Let's say it's isometric. You're trying to produce the most force against that bar that you can. In principle, you could do that, and that ligament would see would not be strained at all because you're not bending the joint, right? You're not rotating. So even though it's a maximum effort, external load, huge high external forces, what the tissues see is very different. It depends how you move. It's not just kinematics, right? It's how you're coordinating your muscles as well. But that's why I view this movement as load management. So when you're talking about preventing extremes, that's part of the load management process, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. How do we apply what we just talked about in terms of moving differently and loading tissues differently into areas like training or rehab. Yeah, it's a big topic, but you think, let's just think about the back, right? So if we're kind of stick there, 
let's say you're doing something in training and exercise, or maybe it's movement coaching, because I think too, we haven't talked about, but you know, back pain and disorders, acute versus a chronic or persistent thing. Like these are very different, or at least we think are quite different scenarios. So let's talk about, you know, maybe prevention or secondary prevention, you know, trying to prevent recurrence or, you know, maybe re-injury if that's, if it's actually an injury, you know, you could do things in training would just be trying to limit end range exposures, right? Like, do you need to be completely rounding your spine on every single deadlift or squat that you do? Or could you maybe either, you know, adapt your body positioning so that you don't have to use up all of your spine motion? Or adapt what how you're loading in general. Like I've never understood. Okay, here's an example. <laughs> Why does every human being on earth have to originate a deadlift from the radius of a 45 pound plate or 20 kg plate? Like who decided that that's the universal height that all humans on earth should lift no matter what? If you're a power lifter or a weightlifter or CrossFit athlete, that is the sport. Like that is what it is. But if you're training for other reasons, like why can't you lift from a little higher, like put it on pins or put it on blocks. Like if your hips run out of room so that your spine has to become part of your hip complex when you're moving, like who decided that all humans have to do that no matter what? These are arbitrary things, right? That are kind of dictated by environmental scenario. So for example, if I felt with a particular athlete or person, maybe it's not an athlete, but you're trying to develop their physical capability through exercise, maybe I don't have them deadlift from the floor, like the conventional floor. Like, I don't think that's overly controversial. If I think I'm limiting their exposure to end range, are they going to flex? Probably a little bit. But if you tell people it doesn't matter, or if, I shouldn't say tell, if you just say kind of anything goes and you'll adapt, what we found is people will actually use a lot of their range. Even when I coach people not to do that, there's still a fair bit of motion. So do I need to have 90% max flexion or can we be at 50% max flexion? Can we better tolerate and positively adapt from the exposure? So that's how I would apply that in practice. Mm -hmm. What about the argument that um, there's a paper published fairly recently in 2021 on how lifting inflection gives you better strength and efficiency. They had participants lift from three different spine postures, maximally extended, maximally flexed, and mid-range positions, and used motion analysis and force measurements to determine moments from the back, hip, and knee. And they also used EMG, which is electromyography, to measure trunk muscle activation and concluded their findings. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Um, that's actually not super controversial at all. And that's a paper, but this has been known since the 90s. Like, there's lots of studies that have shown this. Often, and again, it's going to depend on a couple of things, but I think it's good for people to at least think about these variables. Number one, people have different anthropometry, so different segment lengths and masses and all those kinds of things. So for one person, when they flex a spine may have them in a different like kind of global body position than someone else. Someone has a very long torso or a very short torso relative to their thighs or other limb kind of measurements. They still may end up in a more or less advantageous position to produce forces, which is what you're talking about on the environment. So when someone flexes, 
what often happens, depending on these morphological or anthropometric factors, is the external moment arm, so how close the weight is to the low back and the other joints in general, um, it ends up getting smaller often, and that gives a mechanical advantage. So it can kind of make you stronger if you're looking at, you know, how much weight you're lifting or how much force you're producing against an object. So even just flexing like that, depending on how the rest of your body orients itself, it may make the external load, like put you in a better position mechanically to do that. So that's one variable that already, and when that happens, people are often stronger just because the external moment arm is quite reduced just because they flexed and their shoulders in a different position relative to they were before. The other thing is, is that you have, when you flex, you basically recruit some of the passive tissues like your lumbodorsal fascia that are going through your lats because they're pulling on the bar. Like if it's lifting, your lats have a huge moment arm in your low back. If your arms are fixed, like they are in a lift, they actually contribute to spinal extension, like through muscular activation. So you're basically like really bringing the lats to the table now. They have the longest moment arm of all going through the lumbodorsal fascia and the fascia is being stretched, all of these kinds of things. They're contributing to the moment production at the low back. Now, what you'll see in some of these studies then is they say, well, it's more efficient because you actually, what you see sometimes is the EMG, like the muscle activation will go down. I won't get into the details of efficiency. That, that's me being more pedantic, but there's an assumption there that that's better because there's less EMG. That I don't accept as a fundamental premise because the reason it's down, a reason it's down is because the passive tissues are now contributing. That's what, as a biomechanist, you're trying not to encourage. And so that actually is not solving the issue. But there's a lot of other things that go into this, right? If you're doing this repetitively, that can be less metabolically costly, right? You're doing this, you know, using your spring and your stretching and your muscles and your passive tissues to help out. And you don't like going through these long squat motions with lots of mo people just get, there's a fatigue element that builds in. So it's common for people to like all biological organisms search for low energy solutions. Like this is not even controversial either. Right. So if you have someone do this, you know, something for a long period of time, their movement's going to migrate and often it will migrate to more spine flexion, less knee bending. So the idea that you can produce more force, great. If your goal in life or, you know, an activity is to produce the maximum force right now, but that's a different goal in principle necessarily than having a spine that's going to positively adapt to that. And I think we have to be very careful what we, when we're thinking about all of these factors at play, because people will say, well, performance, well, maybe max performance, but in daily life, like, do you need to find the lowest energy, lowest metabolic cost solution, the easiest way to do things. And in fact, the reason often we exercise is to not do that, right? We're choosing to participate in an activity as a supplement, you know, effectively to build strength and endurance and all these, you know, kind of qualities that we would use with exercise to support health and performance. I guess the point I would, you know, maybe get the listeners to think about is just really question the premise, right? Like, is it better that I can produce more force? Like I have a mechanically advantaged system and it requires less muscle activation. Ask yourself, are you willing to accept that as universally good under all circumstances? I don't, but maybe I'm wrong. So in that paper, then the conclusion was, quote, a flexed back posture is associated with increased 
strength and efficiency of the back muscles compared to a lordotic posture. These findings further question the manual handling advice to lift with a lordotic spine. With some background in biomechanics, it's easier for me to operationalize the concept of efficiency. And I know you didn't want to get too much into it earlier, but I think it may be helpful for the listeners to understand efficiency as a biomechanical concept, like what it actually is, what we're measuring. Since we're talking a bit about energy and then energy conservation here, can you break that down a little bit? Sure. So it is a bit of a picky point, but I think a lot of it is, um, the reason I think it's at least important to consider is because there can be an assumption that if, you know, something is called more efficient, that it's quote unquote better. And that may be the case in certain scenarios, but in, you know, from a kind of formal biomechanical perspective, efficiency is just the ratio of the mechanical work done relative to the, you know, metabolic input or metabolic cost or some kind of measure. So you're looking at, you know, like kind of work out for energy in type of concept. Now, strictly speaking, in the exertions in that particular study you're talking about, they were isometric, meaning that there's no motion or static, you may want to call it, but static even, strictly speaking, doesn't mean no motion, means no acceleration. But the point was these were, you know, isometric max effort exertions. And in that particular case, there's no motion. And if you think back, Tiffany, to your biomechanics courses, do you remember what mechanical work is? the force across a distance applied. Right. So strictly speaking, it's force times displacement. So for mechanical work to be done, there needs to actually be some displacement or AKA motion, a change in position. And that doesn't happen in isometric exertion. So strictly speaking, you can't calculate efficiency in that particular case, or the numerator there is actually zero because no work has been done. So um, that's not a useful concept. Again, that's a bit picky because to me, you know, that doesn't necessarily get at the kind of biomechanical rationale for why you may, you know, advise against fully flexed spine lifting for max efforts or done repetitively. What they were talking about, I think, you know, to be fair, it's actually not something in that particular paper. They were citing earlier papers that use this neuromuscular efficiency kind of concept, if I recall correctly. And the idea was, is that you were producing more force, okay? Like, so again, your isometric lifting force with less EMG activity in your back extensors. Um, so on one hand, like if you were thinking about efficiency as a general concept, so if we get away from me being picky about that definition, as a general concept, I can understand why people may kind of advise against that. They're saying, hey, you can actually like do, you know, some kind of exertion and have less, you know, muscle activity to do it. But that actually supports, you know, this is kind of part of the debate is that what that's meaning is that there's some other tissues besides active muscle that are helping to produce the force. And when you bend and round your spine like that, that's when the passive structures become engaged. So it's not that they, you know, actively do it. What happens is when the muscles elongate a certain point, the muscles stretch themselves, they're adding some resistance, right? So there's a passive muscle element here, just because the muscles are stretching when you're rounding your back. But it's also the disc, the ligaments, the lumbodorsal fascia. So that kind of, you know, all that connective tissue that connects all of your back extensors um, to your pelvis and kind of runs through. So you have all of these passive tissues. And part of the biomechanical rationale is that 
those tissues may not be as well able to tolerate or positively adapt to high loading. So there's not a good reason to say reduce the muscle activation because now you're just relegating all of that to the passive structures. And that's actually supporting, you know, the kind of biomechanical rationale for why one may advise against that, even if it does help you to produce more force at the end of the day. Now, again, if you're competing in a powerlifting competition, like, yeah, bring it all to the table. Your job is to produce force against that barbell and move it. But in daily life or at work, when you're doing this repetitively, or even, you know, if it's something under high loads, that may over time, you know, become a risk factor for some kind of musculoskeletal or low back disorder. So we're not saying that these passive tissues can't be loaded at all, mm -mm. or that loading any of these will lead to low back pain. Like this is not what we're talking about. We're suggesting that over time, if, if you have a repetitive lifting job or repetitive lifting career, passive tissues don't have as much as a capacity to adapt compared to the active tissues. Well, that's the hypothesis. There's a lot of debate about that. Like there's no doubt in my mind, if you just allow me to speak very generally, to my knowledge, all musculoskeletal tissues have ability to positively adapt to certain loading conditions. The other thing I would say quite strongly is that there is evidence that all of those tissues have different abilities and different time courses to respond. So they all have their kind of unique ability. In a living person, it's it's hard to know what's being loaded exactly. Posture is actually the one thing that we can make some inferences about. I'd rather, if I was thinking about risk assessment, I'd much rather know what the actual loads on the specific tissues are, if I could do that somehow. Uh, through biomechanical modeling, we can make some inferences about when you fully round the back. We have a, a decent understanding about, you know, the kind of direction of where these loads are going to the tissues. And so they tend to go more towards passive structures. There's a little, there's kind of a lot of like, I don't want to, again, how detailed you want to get, but even just flexing the spine alone, like, you know, rounding it, it actually adds a lot of shear to the low back. And people don't really understand that um, necessarily. Now, again, there's debate about the models. I happen to think the models, you know, at large still support this general concept, but it's a bit tricky because level by level in the spine, the answer changes a bit, right? Mm -hmm. The spine has a curved structure, all has all this complexity and muscle lines of action and moment arms. So every single level is going to have its own story. But if you look in the lower lumbar spine, where most of the herniations happen and a lot of the end plate fractures and those kinds of things, which we have that from way, way back, what we can see is that when you fully round the back, because of the way the ligaments are oriented, it can actually drive more shear. Explain shear a little bit. Yeah. So compression, if you think of the two vertebrae on top of each other, they would be just kind of pushing down into one another. So like an axial load through the spine. Shear operates at right angles to that. And now the spine is much stronger in compression than it is in shear. And both of them have been linked with low back disorder reporting in several studies, actually. The challenge with shear is that it's really model dependent. So what I mean by that is two biomechanists would be arguing about which model tells a better story based on the assumptions that they're willing to accept. So the people will argue a lot 
about the shear effect, but some of the McGill model, which I, you know, I was trained in that kind of way of thinking. I still think it's one of the best biomechanical modeling approaches out there, the anatomy, the whole thing. There are others. Shiraz Yadol, for example, has an outstanding whole modeling framework. There's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences about the fundamental assumptions about how muscles work and how they share load and all those kinds of things. But you'll see one kind of issue is that at L4, L5, what I just told you is kind of what happens or what the models suggest. Um, Shirazi Adels doesn't exactly say that. They model their ligaments a bit differently. But at L5S1, it actually can go the other way. And if you actually think about it, L4, L5, if we were just to take that as the reference, L5S1 is like a 25 to 30 degree difference in the angle, which perfectly explains why you have all these different vector calculations changing. So all biomechanical models, to my knowledge, that do multi-level modeling, L4, L5, and L5S1 tend to have really quite different loading kind of characteristics. And a lot of it is due because of the geometry, right? You have such a very different angle in the sagittal plane between L5S1 and L4, L5. So as an example, for an average human, if that exists, but statistically speaking, standing up just in a relaxed position, L4, L5 will be kind of parallel to the ground, roughly, give or take. Whereas L5S1 will be angled about 25 to 30 degrees toward the ground. Um, so that's a huge difference in compression and shear forces. So, you know, if you take the cosine of 5,000 newtons in the muscle, um, you know, and change the angle by 30 degrees, it will make a huge difference into what that joint sees. So this is really detailed and it requires a lot of kind of knowledge of these models. So I'm making a lot of generalizations, but it kind of comes, you know, from these directional ideas. So the spine is stronger in compression um, than it is in shear, both compression and shear tolerance in tissue studies and in some other type of modeling studies are decreased with extreme changes in posture. So it's kind of a double whammy, right? If you're really kind of rounded you know, really flex towards end range, you're shifting a lot of the load to the passive structures, and you're actually adding some shear. And, you know, we have some evidence that you're less able to tolerate that because of the posture. So that's kind of like some of the stuff that goes into this. Um, I hope that helps to clarify a little bit. I appreciate that detail. I hope uh, audience were able to catch up with that. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And I think it's really difficult. I can appreciate, especially for your audience who are practitioners. This is you know, there's been decades of spine biomechanics research. It's still going. Lots of people doing this. And it's very difficult to get a handle on this. And you'll have someone else that comes on and they'll have different perspectives because, you know, we're using these modeling techniques and trying to integrate research. Uh, this is the way I see it. But I'm sure I know you'll find people who see it differently. And that's science. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't have anything to discuss at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to the practitioner audience who are not as, you know, inclined into the basic science biomechanics approach, you know, where again, we're not saying that this is all that you need to consider. Of course, as practitioners, the person, the whole person is in front of you. You have to consider the whole person and not just what the spines are doing. Uh, but nevertheless, like, I, I personally find this fun to talk about. Well, I think, yeah, you and I have a lot of common interests. You know, this is where I think of a lot of the load management research and sport and exercise and those kinds of things. Like, and we may have talked about this before, but when we talk about load management, like 
how one moves, how they coordinate and control their motion is actually part of load management. Um, whether or not we should or how should we do it, those are excellent questions for practitioners to deliberate. But biomechanically, that's part of what we're talking about. So yeah, you can change the external load. So how much people are lifting, how frequently, so on and so forth. But how they lift it, how they coordinate and control their movements will also dictate what tissues are loaded by how much, at what rates, how much they're able to tolerate. So both of these things are at play. And if I can get really technical with kind of almost a math term, there's a transfer function between the external and internal load. Posture is a big part of that transfer function. So what the body sees on the outside, like say how much load is being carried or handled or squatted or lifted, whatever that may be, the posture will have a big influence on what the internal loads are on a specific structure. And that's all kind of, you know, coupled with the muscle activation and coordination that's associated with that. So that's super abstract. In my mind, it's very clear because we've done that kind of work for a long time, at least the theoretical kind of background. And I think empirically you can get some supporting evidence, but that's the way that I kind of think about load management. It's part of the external loads, but you know, you're thinking about how it relates to the internal loads. And I can send you some papers maybe that you can post for your audience. Absolutely. Well, one of the other things I learned in biomechanics that's really cool to me, it's how we were talking a bit about shear and how in a lordotic posture, the angle of pull from the muscles counteract that anterior shear. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you can break that down a little bit more. And also the other thing about flexion relaxation phenomenon, whether that is involved in what we see from this study having greater, you know, quote unquote efficiency with a flexed lumbar posture during lifting. Awesome. I, I knew you'd remember. This is a long time ago. You took courses together. So um, it's amazing that you still remember. It's awesome. So with a lordotic posture, as you said, so the lumbar extensors in particular, the big meaty muscles that you can feel if you wrap around and, and grab them in your lower back. If you think of, you know, the thorax or the trunk, your upper body, when you bend forward, that whole thing would slide off of your pelvis if you had no tissues there to be able to hold them. So again, if you're standing up and you bend forward, if you had no muscles and ligaments and cartilage and facet joints, they're also contributing to this, but if they didn't exist, your trunk would just slide right off of your pelvis. So that's where the external shear comes from. So the gravitational forces will pull your upper body forward relative to your pelvis. That's what's creating the, we call external shear, but then you have muscle shear as well. So that's if the spine is neutral or if it's lordotic, your extensors will help pull it back because their vector angle goes back relative to the spine. So that helps to offset that. And then what you get the internal shear, what the joint actually sees in theory could be almost zero. So if this is perfectly balanced, and it never really happens in our models because there's other movement things you need to solve, not just the sheer thing for doing a lot of different things, but that will kind of balance out. So even though you can have a pretty big external shear, depending on how your posture is, that can actually, you know, basically offset that and reduce the total shear that the joint sees. When one flexes, what we see is that those muscles kind of rearrange and follow the curvature of the back and they lose that ability at least at the l4 l5 level to be able to pull that back so all that external shear gets basically relegated to passive structures including passive muscle because it's stretched but that'll actually result in more shear being seen by the joint 
Now, again, where people will argue at L5S1, it won't look exactly like that because the angle's quite a bit different between the muscles and, you know, that 30 degree difference between those joints. So does that get at the first part of your question about kind of that interplay between passive, active, and the posture kind of modulating? Yeah, and that's exactly one of the perfect examples to illustrate how posture is posture has a great function in how the external loads is being transferred to the internal Absolutely. loads. Yeah. And actually, there's a whole big story. Let me see if I can take you just a couple layers deeper if people are interested about this. Because so what happens um, in the, you know, again, models, I'm just going to kind of, you know, give this kind of general disclaimer. But the muscles will wrap around the back, so they lose their ability, at least in the lumbar region, to be able to offset that external shear that we were talking about. But they also end up being closer to the axis of rotation. So let's, let's test your biomechanics knowledge. So if the muscle line of action gets a little closer to the joint axis of rotation, what does that mean from a moment generating perspective? So the moment arm between the pole and the center of rotation is smaller. So the moment right. they can generate actually is less. Or if it to produce the same moment, what would you need? Greater to force and right. greater compression. Exactly. So, oh, beautiful. A plus, just like, just like a few years ago, Tiffany. Um, so now to produce that same moment, you actually need more muscle contribution effectively. That could be some combination of passive and active, but that will apply more compressive force to the joint. And the joint in theory is less able to tolerate that. So you have this like whole, you know, kind of, I don't want to call it a perfect storm because I don't think that rounding your back once is, is something we should be afraid of. But I just want people to understand, you know, where a lot of this comes from is a lot of kind of decisions that, that get in. So a lot of this kind of load sharing and the interplay between passive active, the tolerance of the joint, especially repetitively. So if you do this over and over and over and over and over again, you know, depending on the tissues that are loaded, they may be more or less able to be able to tolerate that and positively adapt. The loading basically will outpace the ability to positively adapt and it can maladapt, right? Yeah, maybe I can just quickly repeat that just so we can get clear. What we're talking about is when we're lifting with a relatively flat or flexed posture, the muscles are kind of wrapped around the spines. So there's less of a distance between the muscles pulling and how the joints are rotating as you lift. And that distance is what we were talking about with the moment arm. And if you were to produce the same sort of capacity in liftings, you needed to provide more force because there's less moment arm. So more force going through the muscles, but also because it is very much more like parallel to the column, the spinal column, that muscle force contributes to more compressive loading. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, depending on what you read, the spine may be a little less able to talk. You'll be closer to its margin of safety. So you're applying more compression to a joint that's less able to tolerate that in extreme flexion. Now, you know, this is what another real challenge. If you think of, you know, this is where the anatomy really helps us kind of reason through and also to, you know, challenge the assumptions. I'm making this general claim, but I'm actually talking about more just a couple of joints in the lumbar spine. If you think of this, the lumbar spine, you know, if it's lordotic, most people have at least some curvature, right? So every joint has a slightly different angle just in relaxed standing. When you're bending, 
how much each one of the joints are rotating can be quite unique across people as well. But the point is even, you know, if we had a generic model, there's more or less rotation at each joint um, in the spine. So what is neutral is going to really be joint dependent. So we can never actually do that. And if you think about it, if you look at the tissue literature, neutral means that the end plates are aligned parallel. So when you're upright standing, a lot of your joints are not actually neutral, at least based on that definition. So this idea of neutral spine, you know, that kind of thing is a little bit misleading at this whole column level, because each joint is actually not aligned with their end plates flat. That's when it's strongest, um, at least in the tissue study. And that's why people will cite, for example, a lot of Michael Adams and Patricia Dolan's work from the 90s. You know, they've said this in their papers, and I agree with them, that like a little bit of flexion is actually good because often that does a better job of aligning most of the column with their end plates relatively parallel. And that's actually what happens in practice. If, if you, you know, recommend to people not to round their back, there'll always be some flexion, but they'll probably be more aligned with actual neutral geometrically as opposed to the curve that you would see in upright standing. So a little bit of flexion on average, a little bit, helps to kind of align that whole column almost in a very straight way and helps it tolerate compression at each joint a bit better. But it's a little tricky again, because now you have to think about all that the muscles are doing as well. How's that for a no answer, Tiffany? <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about neutral. Now I'm curious, like, do you recommend coaching a neutral spine, quote unquote, knowing that there are these complexities involved? I do, because I think, you know, I can be guilty of this and have been. I think neutral is probably not the best language. So again, in the tissue research, what they mean by neutral is that position. There's also a functional way to assess the kind of neutral zone that people talk about from Panjabi's work way back in the 80s and 90s as well. But what that is, is you you take these two segments on top of each other and you look at what the resistance is to rotation. And what happens is when you take those two and they rotate, there's going to be a point where they get far enough and all of a sudden the resistance starts to really increase non-linearly one way than it will do with the other. When there's very little resistance between that motion, that's what's called the neutral zone. That's what the Panjabi conversation is. So if you look at the tissue research... So that's, you know, you can do this empirically with spinal tissues, with specimens, but what gets challenging is that when you compress it, that basically disappears, right? So you have these things, if I just apply a pure moment, these rotating, there's very little resistance when there's not a lot of motion. When it gets near the end range is when you get a lot of that resistance, but when you compress them and bend it, it's actually quite stiff. So that neutral zone basically vanishes with muscle activation. And Gardner Moore showed this way back in the 90s as well, uh, as among other people. So we have to, like, when we look at that tissue work, like often we're taking muscles out. We, we put the effect of muscles by taking the motor, compressing it. Or, and you know, applying torques and moments around it to kind of give you what the joint would see from all of the muscles. But that's kind of the net effect, like how the muscles actually work are going to be very dependent on the joint itself. So I like saying neutral, or maybe neutral is not the right word. I coach that knowing that there'll be some, but it will be unlikely to be extreme. And that's what we're trying to, if you know, people who kind of buy the recommendation, that's more what you're trying to accomplish with their recommendation is eliminating extremes, especially done repetitively under high loads. 
in a coaching perspective, mm-hmm. how far do a person go before we consider something as extreme? The best evidence that I would say to make a kind of a claim about that is around 75 to 80% of the maximum range of motion at that joint is the best. And I've given you some papers that you can post with the show notes about where that comes from, but that's when the passive tissues will really kick in. And now I think this is getting back to a question you may have asked me. What that can look like is that, and it gets back to our first kind of discussion, you know, cleaning this piece up about the efficiency. What that looks like is that you'll have a lot less muscle contribution. So once the muscles don't need to work, let me, let me qualify this. If people have a healthy back, the neuromuscular system is functioning, you know, there's no kind of impairment associated with pain or other types of uh, issues there. What you often see is that when people round, there'll become a point where those muscles will shut off when you kind of get around 75, 80% max on average. And we call that the flexion relaxation phenomenon. So it's something we don't really understand, except to say there's a kind of suggestive, if you look at this, is a huge body of research. People may never have heard of it, but it's been studied since the 50s. But it kind of points to that when there's enough mechanical strain, so when all those passive tissues are stretched sufficiently, there's some kind of, you know, I don't know whether it's central or peripheral, like some kind of spinal loop or something, you know, from a neuromuscular control piece that says, awesome, I don't need muscle activation anymore. I can just hang out on my passive tissues and the muscles will just shut off. Some people, when they're in pain, you won't see this, you know, there's some kind of guarding, whether or not it's like actually you know, cognitive or there's other kind of or psychomotor type of influences. But some people will not actually allow that to happen, um, whether it's conscious or subconscious, not sure. But you won't see that relaxation. Now, the one challenging thing with interpreting, I think, Tiffany, you were asking about, you know, the flexion relaxation in relation to the max movements and all of that. It's all kind of related. The only thing is when you have a lot of external load, like you're pulling maximally, it's unlikely those muscles will be off. And it's also a bit trickier because your thoracic extensors actually contribute a lot to the lumbar extensor as well. And your lats, the lumbar extension mechanism. So they go right through the lumbodorsal fascia, you know, the lats do. So they're contributing, especially with a closed chain, when the hands are in contact with something, they're contributing to the extensor moment. They won't shut off in this particular case. The thoracic extensors may or may not, but under high loads, highly unlikely that you would see that. And they have tendons that go all the way down. So they're able to also contribute to the lumbar mechanism as well, even though the muscle bulk is up in the thoracic extensors. So to clarify that a little bit, you're saying that flexion relaxation phenomenon in healthy individuals without neuromuscular disorders exists when they just do like a free bending sort of a thing, not necessarily lifting. Yeah, this has been studied a bit. I admittedly, it's been a long time since I've read the work. You know, when you're bending over to grab something, you may actually see that. And then someone will say, well, how do you actually extend? Well, it tends to happen then like through hamstrings and posterior element, like in the lumbar spine, right? They'll start pulling the pelvis and until the back kind of catches up and it will come on and help execute the movement. But if I recall correctly, when you start adding a lot of external load, so if it's like a heavy lift, you may not see pure relaxation in those extensors, but I, I don't recall exactly how much that needs to be, or I may even be a bit mistaken. So don't, don't quote me on that one. <laughs> okay. 
And going back to, you know, in practical settings, we ideally can coach people to avoid extremes. And now we're saying extremes is 75 to 80% of the max range of motion available. That's actually quite quite a bit of range uh, allowable. It is, but the challenge is, is you actually, at the individual joint level, that can be used up pretty quickly. So, you know, someone may have a particular joint, say L4, L5, they'll just choose one randomly that may get very close to its end range. Like you see this in sitting, right? When people, this has been done with imaging as well. When you sit, it's really, you know, kind of tilts the pelvis backwards and you get a lot of the range of motion in the lower lumbar joints is kind of used up. Even with a relatively like similar spine angle, like global spine angle, you'll see differences in the relative rotations amongst different levels. So one could be in a situation where they end up using a fair bit of the range even though it may not be the full range as well. The other thing is, uh, I'm trying to remember, so we have some unpublished data. Someday we'll probably try to write this up. I keep talking about this, but the challenge is, is that it takes a lot of flexion to occur before we would agree that flexions even happened. And, you know, this is not published data, so nobody should take this as, you know, kind of what the number is. But I've seen numbers like upwards of 60, 70% of max before people even agree that there's been much motion at all. So when people see it, you may be a lot closer to 85 than you think. And that's why we say zero. So from a practical perspective, from a knowledge translation perspective, you know, I might recommend no motion. I know motion's happening, right? But if I give the window for motion, we're probably already close to that 75, 80% max if I'm seeing it. Now, again, I don't know if that's actually the case across the board. So we've done some work looking at visual observation. Um, there tends to be a lot of motion before people agree. And that's all I can, I really want to say at this point until we actually subject it to peer review. That's data sitting on a hard drive somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> again, I'm guilty of that too. Data sitting yeah, on a hard drive, trying to write that up. No, so... And if we go back to the original discussion on the paper, in their abstract, what they suggest is that the findings further question manual handling advice to live with a lordotic lumbar spine. Would you question that uh, sort of from their data and drawing this implication from it? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, everyone's favorite little phrase, well, it really depends. Who are we talking about? Under what scenario, Right. If someone is lifting, you know, 200 times a shift, 30 kilogram boxes or whatever that is, um, I don't love, you know, based on the biomechanical perspective. And there's, it's not just all of it. There is some epidemiological data too, which I've sent you some papers that you can post, you know, lots and lots of spine motion and jobs that have that tend to have higher low back disorder risk associated with that, the risk of reporting it. There's a lot of debate about causation. We can't really test causation in this simple way. We don't do RCTs to damage people's backs or to produce pain, right? So we're looking at this kind of confluence or triangulation and using things like Bradford Hill criteria. There's lots of things in epidemiology that we try to gain insights into causation. Some people will be pretty strong to talk about, you know, this is causal. Um, I go back and forth depending on what specific you know, if we see pathology, like when you see herniations and you see end plate fractures, you know, those type of very specific back pathologies, 
I think I'm a little stronger in that probably sometimes when it's difficult to identify, you know, the quote unquote nonspecific, that's a bit trickier, right. To, uh, to say, because I don't know um, if there's a, you know, a nociception and where that is and what joint, if there's damage or even just changes in like pressure or something that is acutely not tolerated well, it's very difficult to know that. So when you ask me, you know, about their conclusion. I think if the point is like producing max effort one time, like a producing a max load externally, I don't think that's a new finding. We've known that since the 90s, what that study showed. In fact, they were using methods that show the exact, in the paper that developed the method, show the exact same answer. So I don't think that the biomechanical rationale for low back disorder prevention is about how much force you can exert in a maximum isometric lift right? Yeah. Uh, that's not actually where this comes from. Now, if you're a power lifter, again, we're having a different conversation about winning a competition versus tolerating a chronic exposure in work and life. Maybe wrapping up this discussion for power lifters, then if we're saying, okay, we understand that this is the demands of your sport, which is to produce max effort and, you know, bringing all the elements into the table will contribute to your max performance, then is that advisable? Yeah, it's a really, you're at, like, it's a huge, I'm speculating like crazy. I have a huge bias. I don't love promoting fully rounded lifting. Um, if it happens in competition, sure. Um, if someone do that, but you know, the data on powerlifting is a bit tricky because if you look at the epidemiology it doesn't support that powerlifting is super dangerous or risky um, necessarily. If the training is well dosed, you know, like you have a smart training plan and that's beyond just like what load you're lifting and what freak, like beyond the fit principle, I'm talking about managing life stressors and sleep and nutrition and all the other activities or work that people need to do. Most powerlifters are not professional powerlifters. They have jobs and families and other responsibilities. So when that stuff can be well managed, you know, maybe someone can tolerate that, but if every lift someone does in the gym, you know, that to me is a bit harder to wrap my head around promoting that as the strategy to get stronger. And I think there's a lot of survivorship bias in all of this, meaning that, you know, it depends whose anecdotes people want to hear. So I happen to been around that kind of sport for a long time. A lot of people have back issues. A lot of people retire from the sport because of back issues. Now, again, it's way multi, like, I'm not going to attribute that to spine flexion. Like I don't, I'm never going to make that claim. I think it's way too complicated and complex to do that. But based on the biomechanical kind of evidence, I, I have a hard time just promoting that as the strategy. One has to ask themselves too, when you're trained for something like that, you're trying to elicit adaptations, right? So if you're constantly working around your weak points, and what I mean by that, not, I don't want to talk about injury. Like if there's only one position that you can do this in that you always migrate to, to win workout scores, to lift the maximal load today in training versus maybe I could modulate my technique or variations or whatever to try to drive and change where my weak link is. So yes, your initial exposure fully rounded, maybe a lot of people can lift the most there today, but that doesn't mean forever. Like that's why we train, right? Um, and maybe someone may not be interested in that because the thought is, well, if, if you do this, the tissues will positively adapt. And if you dose it right, you know, that's the case. 
That may be the case, but given the current evidence, I'd be a little more conservative than that. I think repetitively rounding the back and, you know, again, the question of repetitively, like, are they producing two max efforts a week in training? That's not repetitive, but what else are they doing in their lives or what else does their training look like? Maybe every squat, their back is rounding. Every time they do a, you know, any type of hinge pattern, their back's rounding. It could be a behavioral thing that maybe would be less likely to be able to be tolerated. I don't know. This is a very difficult question to answer, but my bias is to be a little more conservative that way, um, at least in a training context. And again, always ask, who are we talking about? (laughs) Does that person already have, you know, radiculopathy or other type of symptoms? You know, they have evidence of a herniation or something like that. I think that's a very different conversation. One of the discussions I remembered about intrinsic personal factors that can contribute how you survive in that sport. One of the factors is even how thick your spinal column is. Absolutely. Interesting to me that the thicker it is, you may be more resilient to a lot of these loads because the loads are spread out across a bigger cross-sectional area. Yeah, and it's tricky because... That bigger spine will tolerate, say, more compression a lot because of the reason you're talking about. You know, it's basically a pressure. So the same force applied over a bigger area is less pressure. Um, How we can convert that internal, it turns into stress, so on and so forth, biomechanics. But but the ability to bend those big, thick, heavy spines, um, there's a lot more bending stresses with those. Mm. So they may be more you know, just geometrically or morphologically set up to handle more of that compressive load. But when you bend them, they have very high bending stresses and bending moments on them because of the motion that they can go through and because of the inherent stiffness, whether or not that's you pick the parents that did that and or you've been training long enough to enable those types of adaptations to really stiffen that back. I don't think in powerlifting, it would make a lot of sense in that particular example, like to have a lot of spine motion to produce high spine velocities, I don't mean just how fast you're moving, but how fast your back is extending or flexing or rounding. You can't produce the same moments. We lose strength and that's like, you know, that's the force velocity curve of muscle. It matches that quite well. You know, as that velocity gets higher and higher, you're able to produce less active force. It's complicated because they're now viscoelastic. You're stretching things. It can get energy return. But you wouldn't see most power lifter because of the loads, they're going to be very slow spine motion, if at all, will be very low velocity. So all of these things, you know, if we look in the biomechanical literature, all of these things kind of interact and interplay to dictate what the loads are and what can be tolerated. And the saying that proximal stability gives distal athleticism. Yeah, it's a, you know, kind of a interesting heuristic, right, to be able to stiffen, you know, your to get towards the middle of your body where your whole body is heavy, right? So there are kind of like effective mass principles at play here too, right? So you're able to kind of, you know, move limbs faster, all those kinds of things, because you've kind of anchored this in the middle. And again, this is a lot of kind of physics reasons um, that have been proposed for that. And I think they're pretty well supported. That concludes our discussion around nuancing the spine flexion controversy with the biomechanical perspective. Again, biomechanics is only a part of the discussion to have around low back disorders, and it's heavily context-dependent. So I don't want to give the impression that we're claiming things that we're not claiming here. 
It is, however, a part of my desire to facilitate knowledge translation and discussions through the podcast, and I hope to continue more discussions on low back disorders with different people. If you're not tired of me and Tyson's voice yet, our last episode is about movement-related strategies for low back management. Thank you.